Welcome to the latest podcast by Stephen Mansfield. Today, the author discusses his book, The Search for God and Guinness. The idea for this book came about when my publisher, uh, Thomas Nelson, Joel Miller, and I were having a get-together, and he said he wanted to do a series of books uh, in which it was like you were driving down the street, you'd see the icon of a company or, or a brand or a product, and you'd reach up with your mouse and click on that icon, and a story of faith would unfold. And we were sitting around, we thought it was a great idea, we were sitting around trying to figure out what companies, what brands, what icons would we use. And suddenly he said, Guinness. Well, it just so happened, even though I'm not a beer drinker and haven't spent a lot of time, had not at that time spent a lot of time studying Guinness, um, that I knew a little bit of the Guinness story. I knew that they had brewed beer um, and a new kind of beer. I knew that there was a sort of an evangelical emphasis in their company. I knew John Wesley had been part of that story. I knew that they had used their wealth to take care of the poor in Ireland. And uh, when I told him what I knew, and he told me what he wanted to do, uh, we knew a book was born. And so we spent time talking about it, got all excited, and we were to contract on this book in no time. And, it, and I think it was a great idea. I'm very thankful that Joel asked me to do this book. The moment that I knew that the Guinness book was mine was when my wife Beverly uh, brought to me a book she had uh, bought in a used bookstore. And it was a prospectus of the Guinness Company in 1928. I was absolutely astonished by what I saw because it gave an overview of the benefits that the average worker at Guinness would have enjoyed in 1928. Now bear in mind, this is a year before the Great Depression. So this is not exactly an enlightened time for you know, employee benefits. But had you worked for Guinness at that time, you would have enjoyed 24-7 medical care, 24-7 dental care. You would have enjoyed massage therapy, for heaven's sakes. You would have enjoyed uh, an internal savings and loan. You would have enjoyed libraries and uh, sports facilities. The Guinness would have paid you to take your family into the country for a day a year just to get out of the city air. Um, they would have given you two pints of brew a day. They would have paid for your funeral. They would have paid for your pension at the pleasure of the board without you putting in a dime. Uh, they would have had nurses and doctors who visited your home to make sure that your home was healthy. I mean, the list of benefits an employee of Guinness would have enjoyed in 1928, you know, almost rivals that of Microsoft and Google today. So when I saw that on my, uh, on my desk as I read that book, and then I swung my ups, eyes up to my office television and saw the financial collapse of 2008, 2009. And I saw the difference between Guinness in 28 and Wall Street in 2008, 2009. Uh, I knew I had a story and I knew I wanted to tell it. Well, you know, the biggest challenge in writing this book were the Guinness heirs themselves. Um, they are eccentrics. They are people you cannot get access to. Uh, Michelle Guinness, by the way, is wonderful. She's a BBC commentator. She helped us a great deal, sent us pictures, corresponded with us. She was marvelous. Um, others, frankly, were a little squirrely. Uh, some of them, you know, would uh, sort of make a head fake towards helping us and then drop out. They, they are a notoriously litigious bunch. They are notoriously eccentric. Um, and so the hardest part of the book for me was in working with the personalities uh, within the Guinness family. But that was certainly offset by Michelle, was certainly offset by those at the storehouse. Uh, the archivist at the storehouse is marvelous. 
Um, and I, overall, it was a marvelous experience, but without question, uh, in a manner different from any other book I've ever written, uh, the, the subject family itself was my biggest challenge for sure. As soon as we decided to do this book on Guinness, I knew we had to go to Dublin and actually made that part of the deal with the publisher. And I'm really glad I did. I went with my wife, Bev, and her son, Isaac Darnell, uh, who's a wonderful photographer. And we, you know, of course, flew over and, and went to Dublin. It was bitterly cold on a lot of the days there. But, you know, if you don't go to Dublin and you don't touch the Irish soul a bit and you don't get a sense of what a company like Guinness not only does mean to Ireland, uh, but, ha but has meant, especially in the hard times of its history, you really don't have any kind of sense of, of, of how proud they are and how proud they are that the Gaelic harp, for example, is used as the Guinness symbol and uh, how, the, how proud they are that uh, even the photograph or the painting of Arthur Guinness is one of the great symbols of Ireland. So I'm, I'm very glad that we went. And then the other thing, too, is that, again, I'm not a beer drinker. And so I keep coming back to that because until you sit in an Irish pub, until you think about the working man, uh, you know, slaving away all day and then having his pint at the end of the day and the conversations that happen. And, you know, Isaac is a real beer lover, so he really helped us get into some of these great pubs and kind of had a sense as we walked down the street, you know, of, oh, okay, let's go do this one. And it was as though the very wood itself, the very brass at the bar would speak to you. And you had this sense of what a simple pint of Guinness might mean to an Irish workman uh, at the end of the day. You had to touch that to understand Guinness. You know, one of the big surprises for me in going to Dublin was that my academic sense of sources uh, was sort of tweaked, and I realized that the real record of Guinness is not as much in its archives and not as much in the formal records that are kept by a company like that, but it was in the lives of the people we met in Dublin. We went to a pub on our first day uh, to have lunch, and the waiter immediately began to talk about his family and uh, his his family's history working for Guinness. We got into a taxi, and the taxi driver got all teary-eyed about his family and how his family had worked for Guinness and the, the difference it had made. Uh, you know, you go to the storehouse. The people there aren't just, uh, you know, hirees. They're people who have a history. And I've read articles uh, that other people have had the same experience as they've been checking out Guinness, that, you know, professors at Trinity uh, College and, and, and folks whose whole lives were changed. We have to realize that Guinness got down among, amongst the common man and, and poured money into their lives and changed culture and paid for kids who had promised to go to fine schools. And so, uh, you, you know, the record, in my opinion, of Guinness, the, the tribute to their largesse is in the lives of these people. Uh, when we came out of the storehouse uh, late one afternoon, late one overcast afternoon in Dublin, um, there was a guy with a horse cart. Uh, he was disheveled. Uh, looked like the kind of guy who might work with horses in kind of a grain cart, a horse-drawn grain cart. He even had grain, as I recall, on his shoulders and a little bit in his hair. And I wasn't sure what we were talking about here. And I thought, well, maybe he's going to ask for money or something. It turned out that he had worked for Guinness for many years. Um, and I thought that maybe he was going to complain. Maybe he was like kind of a one-man protest like you sometimes see outside of companies. But he wanted to tell us how marvelous it was to work for Guinness and how these were the best years of his life, and how the company had changed a little bit now. You know, it's part of the uh, Italian alcoholic drinks company called Adagio, um, or Diageo, 
but uh, but it was it was absolutely fascinating that this man felt almost like he was a living monument in a sense, standing outside in the street, outside of the storehouse, recounting the story. I mean, I'm sure he would like to have had a tip or something, but um, but he really had a story to tell, and it was a story that was consistent with what we had seen in the lives of people all over Dublin. And that's that's a that's the kind of record I want to leave, uh, and I think that that it's the best tribute to Guinness. I don't like beer. I, I don't like the taste of it. I never have. I'm sorry. I don't like beer and I don't like coffee. And so when I would think about beer throughout my life as my friends drank it or my parents drank it, my wife, I, I would just assume it was, you know, like Diet Coke with alcohol in it. You know, it was just this sort of fabricated drink. When I began to do the research on Guinness and went to the storehouse in Dublin and relied on the people I was working with who love beer, I began to understand a bit of the craft that's involved, that it's not just this drink that comes out like a Diet Coke, you know, the product of three or four chemicals, the way it's brewed, uh, the, the, the history, the, the combination of ingredients, the way they're chosen, uh, the fascinating chemical reactions that happen when you heat something up and then you dry it and, and and then you add yeast and then you let it sit for a while then you steep it it just it, it became uh, something magical to me because I, I don't know of anything else in my life quite like that I mean I've watched cakes bake and biscuits rise and things like that but I've, I don't know that I've ever in my sort of non-scientific non-chemical life seen something almost come together like it was a living being. Um, and this was, this was fascinating to me, really, really fascinating. And I think the thing that touched me the most about the actual physical uh, beer, uh, especially with Guinness, is that in Dublin they are still using strains of yeast that were originated by Arthur Guinness himself. In other words, the strains he was using in vats 250 years ago are, are still part of what they're doing in those high-tech canyons that you walk through when you go to the storehouse in, uh, in Dublin. So, so all of that was new to me. It might not be new to people who are enjoying a beer at the, at the baseball game on a Saturday afternoon, but it was new to me. Uh, and it was the idea that beer itself could be a living thing, that the actual thing in the glass could be something living, something that has its own history, its own heritage, uh, I found that to be uh, really fascinating, and it was a it was a real motif for me uh, in, in writing the book because I wanted to focus on their their heritage of generosity and benevolence, but I couldn't get away from the fact that all that was made possible by a family's actual love for the physical beer. Well, I've I've had a lot of experience in uh, disappointing or angering audiences. I wrote the faith of George W. Bush and. A lot of my friends on the left side of the political spectrum were upset with me. And then a few years later, I wrote The Faith of Barack Obama, and I had the conservatives all mad at me. Um, so I'm not, I'm not too unfamiliar with that. When I, when I wrote Guinness, I knew that there would be people who were anti-alcohol or thought I was encouraging drunkenness or something. And, and that's, you know, that was a risk I was willing to take. But I think there's some insanity on both sides of the discussion about alcohol. I think those who are anti-alcohol in, in the church or religious situations are, uh, need to be careful uh, because it's really moderation that is the issue, not so much the consumption of any alcohol. And then, of course, our alcohol-crazed culture uh, needs, needs some tempering. So I was willing to take a stand for 
you know, what I think the Guinness has stood for, which is, you know, moderate consumption of alcohol, healthy consumption of alcohol. And I was encouraged in this while I was writing it by all the research that's come out about how moderate use of alcohol is good for everything from the heart to the skin to the, you know, the, your whole body. So um, I, I have to add some pushback, but I'll tell you the person that interests me the most. If there's anybody who is a teetotal and Baptist, it's my mother-in-law. Uh, Annie Merle Williamson has probably never had a drop of alcohol her whole life, certainly not her whole Christian life. And um, she, I'm sure, when she heard that I was writing about beer, uh, had a little bit of the same response that she probably had when I was writing about Barack Obama. What the heck is my son-in-law doing? Um, but she read the book and loved the book because of the story that it told, because of this Christian family, because of the moderation that they showed, because they even funded campaigns for moderate consumption of alcohol. And so that's the, that's the sort of response to the book I was looking for. And so, yay, mother-in-law, I got what I was looking for. You know, when I'm writing a book, I have my highs and my lows like everybody else. And, and this Guinness book probably had a bit more lows only because I was swamped by detail. I was dealing with a rather difficult family and trying to get the story. Um, and of course, I'm across the pond from most of the resources, even though we, we visited Dublin. But the probably the moment that I felt it all come together, and this is often the case for me, was at the end when I wrote the final section, the epilogue, and I identified the five principles really of the Guinness story, the, the, the pillars of the Guinness success. And when I finished that section and sort of put a bow on all of it, that's when I knew that all the detail of the story and all the 250 years of history and all of the you know, the details about wort and yeast and yield and all that stuff that we had done, all the history of beer, um, paid off in the principles that then others could replicate and live out of the Guinness story. What are those five pillars? Oh gosh, I'm not sure I can do that from memory, but let me tell you from the book. You know, these, these five pillars are uh, pretty exciting to me because they are what Guinness built on. Here's the first one. Discern the ways of God for life and business. This was something that the Guinnesses talked about all the time. They based it on a quote from Prince Albert, uh, Victoria's husband. And it was this, Gentlemen, find out the will of God for your day and generation, and then as quickly as possible, get into line. Now, that was one of the great principles of, of the Guinnesses. The second principle is think in terms of generations yet to come. They, they never thought in terms of just their generation. They were thinking three, four generations down the road. And I think it led to a multi-generational company, obviously. Number three is whatever else you do, do at least one thing very well. The Guinnesses diversified and went into other ventures, but they never left beer. And sometimes when they left beer a little bit too much, they failed. And so it sort of chastised them and got them back in line. Uh, number four is master the facts before you act. Uh, they had a policy of considering long and acting quickly. They considered long. People would pull their hair out waiting for the Guinnesses to make a decision uh, about something. They would ponder, research, and then when they acted, they acted very quickly. And then finally, invest in those you would have invest in you. One of my favorite quotes, probably my favorite quote in the book is this. It is, it, it's, a, it's a Guinness maxim. You cannot make money from people unless you are willing for people to make money from you. The thing that touched me the most in writing about the Guinnesses was their devotion to the poor. Sounds like perhaps I'm myth-making or doing PR speak, but the fact is that though the Guinness family was the wealthiest family in Ireland, and for a number of decades the wealthiest family in the UK, in, in Britain, 
uh, they were devoted to the poor. They had absorbed John Wesley's dictum uh, that you should make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can to the glory of God. And for the Guinnesses, this meant ministering and giving money to the poor. They had their first chance to do that during the Irish potato famine, and there are monuments to this day in Ireland uh, of gratitude to the Guinness family for the hundreds of thousands of lives they saved. Um, again in 1900, when Dublin was the Calcutta of Europe, with the highest death rate, infant mortality rate, and disease rate, the Guinnesses made a difference. One of the Guinness heirs received five million pounds on his wedding day, and then the next day moved his new bride into the hovels of Dublin just to draw attention to the plight of the poor. And so since I was writing this book while I was watching the implosion of Wall Street in 2008 and 2009, uh, it was a tremendous contrast. But, but the thing that lives on for me about this book, the thing that lives on for me about the Guinness story, and the thing that lives on the streets of Dublin, by the way, when you're walking around, seeing the monuments, seeing the buildings, seeing the housing, even talking to professors at Trinity and taxi drivers about how their families were changed, uh, is the legacy of the Guinnesses when it came to ministering and taking care of the poor. I think that's their greatness. Uh, I think that's the thing that will survive the beer if the beer should ever leave the market. Um, and that's the thing that delighted me the most as the author of this book. One of the best stories that I heard the whole time I was researching this book and talking to executives at Guinness and Diageo, the current parent company of Guinness, is that even though Diageo is a secular Italian drinks company, as the British call it, alcoholic beverage company, and um, even though they don't really try to maintain any particular sort of historic Irish culture in the Guinness company of today, the Guinness workers themselves have tried to keep the heritage of Guinness alive and keep the values alive and keep the culture alive. And the Diageo executives will tell you that uh, this not only has made happier workers, it's made a more productive company. Um, and it's touching to these, uh, you know, sort of secular Italians that these Irish Catholic, uh, Irish workers there at, at Guinness are keeping this historic legacy alive and, it's, uh, and that the beer means so much to them. And uh, that made it mean just a little bit more to me as well. <laughs>